So tonight we're doing our special message, You Ask For It. Uh, last week we put out the phone number and over 40 people sent in a text message with a question. Uh, out of those 40 responses, nearly 25 of them involve these two questions that we'll be talking about tonight. Uh, the first question is, is homosexuality a sin? And to take on that question, Brother Todd's going to answer that. <laughs> I uh, had been one to talk and thrive for a long time, but not about this. Uh, I want to start by saying that uh, in Scripture, there are some absolute truths where the Bible speaks, and it speaks in a very clear, and, and there's no debate uh, about the answer way. And then also in Scripture, there are, there are things that are debatable. Uh, how you do communion, by the way. Uh, how you baptize someone. Uh, we as Baptists know that unless you go all the way under, you're not really saved. But there are a lot of folks that think you can just sprinkle or throw a little water on them and they're okay. So it's a debatable topic. And then there are things in Scripture which are 100% sure where God speaks and, and he makes it clear this is good in your life or this is bad in your life, uh, where, where we see things like I am the way to heaven, the only way, and there's no question about how a person receives salvation except through Jesus. The question of homosexuality is, in my estimation, one of those things that there's really no debate Uh, You can look at it from a hundred different ways. You can attempt to interpret the scriptures in any way you choose, but it's very clear that every time homosexuality in the scripture is talked about, it is listed uh, among sins, and that there will be consequences and issues related uh, to those sins. Bible's very clear that it is against the will and the way of God. So if, if, if the question is just that simple, if you want to know if it's a sin, and, and, and you can't find any, any way to make it seem right or good or okay, if you look at the scriptures. But it's not just that simple of an issue, along with every other sin in the Bible. Uh, and I want to stop for just a second and say, I think it is an especially repugnant sin to the church for a couple of reasons. First of all, those of us in the church are, uh, let me see how I can say this, we're more willing to accept sin, more willing to offer grace towards the sinner if we feel like the sinner is sorry for what they've done. It's kind of the doctrine of repentance, right? And when we observe gays and lesbians, many, many times we see them marching with a sign, they're proud, they're rallying around their sin, and we see that, I think, or the traditional churches see that as a, a throwing sin in their face. And so we talk a lot about it. Secondly, and and not sure that these numbers aren't changing, but in general, 
Uh, most of us inside the church haven't struggled with that issue as much as we have other issues. So, you know, you know what sin that I'm strongest against? Your sin, not mine, right? It's a pretty good rule of thumb, isn't it? If you're doing it, it's really bad. If I'm doing it, it can be forgiven. It's important to say this. That's kind of why the church seems to be at odds with the gay community more so than they are with the bar owner's community or, or the, those who grow marijuana or uh, pornography industry, any number of things. Gambling industry, we could go on and on and on. That's why that battle seems to be the one that gets the most attention. So several places in Scripture it mentions homosexuality, and it always mentions it as sin. Started as early as perhaps Noah and his son, right after uh, they, they got off the boat. You can read that, or not the boat, the ark, but you know what I was talking about. And all throughout Scripture, uh, we see it mentioned time to time. Now, I want to stop there and say this. Though the church seems to take a particularly strong stand, and though it seems to be that the gay and lesbian community feel like that the church is their enemy, the reality of the fact of the matter is that homosexuality is no more wrong, no greater a sin than any sexual sin. And my best guess is that every person in this room whether it be the simple sin of looking at someone with lust, or whether it's been a sin that you've actually participated in, such as fornication or adultery or are dealing with pornography or any number of things that can trace themselves back to a sexual sin in Scripture, it is no more wrong to live a homosexual lifestyle than it is to live an adulterous lifestyle in God's eyes. And so for us to look at a person who struggles with that sin and have some particular kind of hatred and lack of forgiveness and no grace at all is absolutely ridiculous. And if the church doesn't learn how to respond to the gay community, if the church doesn't learn how to respond with grace and grace doesn't mean we condone what you do, then we're never going to be as effective as we should be in doing what God asked us to do and Jesus demonstrated with his life, which is to go to those places where there's sin, to go to those people where there's sin, and to work at redeeming them. Now, all of that being said, I think it's also important to stop for just a moment and ask ourselves a question. How did God determine what was sin? Now, some people look at God and they view him as, you know, a killjoy. Everything that's fun, God says it's a sin, right? You ever feel that way? I know he's against seven or eight things that I've done today. But the reason God says, you know, this is wrong for you, this is sin in my eyes, is not because he wants to restrict us and ruin our lives. 
He called certain things sin because he knew that if we participated in those things, ultimately it would cause us pain, consequences, and heartache. And so many times when each of us has failed, when we've fallen into something, when we have uh, done something that we know is against God's will, we start to bear the pain and the struggle and the consequences of that act. God loves us and wants us to be at happy, at peace. He wants us to, to have no obstacle between ourselves and him. And so he says, here are some things that will destroy that peace if you participate in them. And I think our sexual sins can do that quicker than anything, it seems like. Maybe addiction would fall into that category. But when we begin to struggle with what's right morally and ethically, sexually for us, whether it begins with something as simple as lust and moves into uh, an addiction to pornography, or whether it's the actual act, the consequences of that act, lives that are damaged and harmed, relationships that are destroyed or broken, we realize, you know, I'm I'm standing here before you as someone tonight who uh, went through a painful divorce and have been cheated on. I know the consequences of that pain, of that sin. And, And those folks who uh, participate in any of those sins from, from perversion to fornication, there's a little bit of them or a whole big part of them at times that is ripe with consequences. And the reason God says don't do that is because God wants you to be healthy and whole. So back now to the question at hand, is homosexuality a sin? It is. And yet there's a shadow of a doubt in this particular case as there is in no other. And I really think, Blake, that I should call someone in the audience, on someone in the audience who's wiser than I, because some people would say and offer up empirical data that God created you to be that way. Which kind of makes the whole argument even tougher, isn't it? There are some that say people are born that way. It's genetic. There are others who say people become that way due to environment or the culture that they're a part of. There are others who say they make that choice. I am not smart enough to answer that question because I'm a preacher and not a doctor or a scientist, but I also believe that God would not create you to be something and then judge you for it if you turn out to be who he created you to be. Now, I'm not offering a loophole. I'm just trying to say, here's this problem that we have to deal with if, if indeed that's true. What is more repugnant to me than any sexual sin, no matter what it is. And what I believe was more repugnant to Jesus than any sexual sin run the gamut from fornication to adultery 
to homosexuality are people who claim the name of Christ who become harsh and judgmental and condemning rather than gracious. I would rather sit down to dinner with a homosexual than I would with the pastor of the Westboro Baptist Church. I'd kill that guy. (laughs) The church is called to do exactly what Jesus came to do. Anytime Jesus was asked about why he was on the planet, what his mission was, his answer was exactly the same every time. I have come to seek and to save those who are lost. You cannot seek and save people that you shut the door to. You cannot seek and save people whom you say are doing something that's past forgiveness. If you study the scripture, you'll see there's one and only one unforgivable sin unto death, and that is to utterly and absolutely deny Christ and say you're done with him to shut that door. Every other sin is redeemable. And then you say, well, if it's redeemable and it carries with it the element of repentance, can someone say, for instance, who's involved in a, in a, a lifestyle that is sinful, can they come to God and repent and continue in that lifestyle? Is stopping necessarily a part of repentance, which is also a really difficult question to answer because there are at least a dozen things in my life that I've repented of a hundred times and fallen back into it, and I still don't doubt the magnitude of God's grace to you. I think repentance and God's forgiveness rest not so much upon what your sin is or how often you repent it, repent of it, but rather how pure your desire is to walk with God. If the church dealt with my sin and your sin the way it often does with homosexuality, it'd be an empty church, wouldn't it? It is a sin, but no greater than your sin. And unless we learn as a congregation to offer the same grace and forgiveness that I believe God will offer, then we have failed in our calling as a church. Now, Blake, I don't know about you, but I'm not answering any questions. job, Todd. I'm glad that you answered that question and not me. (laughs) Now, the next question is the most texted-in question, and that is, why do bad things happen to good people? Um, It honestly didn't surprise me that this was the question that people wanted an answer to, because so many times in my life, I've asked that question. Uh, I've seen people who I believe to be saints, you know, those kind of people that love constantly without abandon, who would do anything for anyone, 
who have to go through really crappy situations, uh, who have to suffer and go through things that I wouldn't wish upon my worst enemy, nonetheless this person who I think is a good person. But I believe that there are multiple reasons why bad things happen to good people. The first is, we live in a fallen world. When God created the world, and he created Adam and Eve, they were walking in perfect harmony in the garden. There was no pain, there was no poverty, there was no brokenness. But then Adam and Eve sinned against God. They broke what he commanded them to do, and they ate of the apple. And when they did that, they broke this perfect creation. I look at it like this. If you guys were to leave this place and go buy a brand new car, and in the same night on your drive home rear-end somebody, you wouldn't blame the accident on the manufacturer. Just like that, we can't blame God for the brokenness that we're living in. Because this wreck, this wreck was caused by the actions of the sinner, Adam and Eve. The second reason why I believe I think bad things can happen to good people is because of the sins of other people. Uh, we see in the Bible an example of this when we look at King David. King David committed adultery with the wife of one of his greatest soldiers, Uriah. And not only did he commit adultery, he knocked her up. And um, because can you he say did that, that in church? it's Thrive. I can. Oh, I can, I can, I can. <laughs> <laughs> he impregnated her. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, <laughs> that's a much holier way. <laughs> Anyways, um, <laughs> in order to cover up what he did, his sin, he uh, devised this plan. And what he did was he pulled Uriah from the battlefield in hopes that he would come home to his wife and fornicate with her. And They're believe, married, man. They were married. That's not a, that's I know. Not, yeah. So I'm allowed to say make love to her. He wanted to convince Uriah that this baby was his. But the thing was, Uriah had character, and he was this noble guy, and he refused to go home to the comfort of his wife, knowing that his men were on the battlefield. So David realized, well, crap, my plan's ruined. Um, so he devised a new plan, and this plan ended with Uriah being killed on the battlefield. You see, this good guy, this innocent man, was killed because of the sins of David. And we see that in our everyday life. It's the kid who goes hungry because his dad's in jail or his mother's strung out on drugs. Uh, it's that story that we see on the news of this innocent person dying in a car crash because of a drunk driver. Or we look at the bigger scale of things and we look at the Twin Towers. Thousands of people's lives who are affected by the sins of other people. You see, we question where is God in all of this and why would he allow that? But the fact of the matter is, while God is sovereign, he's also given each of us the ability to make choices. And sometimes that choice to sin can hurt other people. I think the third thing that bad things happen sometimes to good people is because God is trying to prepare us for something. If we re rewind in the timeline of David to when he was just a shepherd boy taking care of his flock, uh, we can read about stories of him taking on a lion and a bear. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't picture myself as a young boy taking on a lion and a bear, especially without the modern technology that we have at our disposal today. I can imagine that while he was going through those experiences, he was probably questioning, God, you know, why am I going through this? Why are you putting me through this trial, this hardship? Uh, I imagine, you know, he wasn't killed, but I imagine he was probably hurt, uh, beat up, bruised, scratched up. And he probably questioned it at the time. But fast forward a little bit, and David is standing toe-to-toe -to -toe with Israel's greatest foe, Goliath. 
Now, the way that he got there was he had to go before Saul, and when he was pleading his case, Saul was telling him, he was saying, David, you're, you're too young, and you're too inadequate for this fight. But David responded, he said, I've defeated a lion and a bear, and my God has delivered me from both. He's protected me from both. Goliath will be no different. And because of that, David slayed Goliath, changing the course of history for the Israelites. See, sometimes that lion or that bear, that, that trial or that struggle, that thing that we're experiencing right now that's really hard, that we don't understand, is a part of God's conditioning program, preparing us for our biggest battle. This big thing that we have to face in our life, that once we get through, the rewards are great, and God's glory is seen. God's glory is seen. And talking about God's glory, that brings me to the fourth thing, I think, why God allows bad things to happen to good people. Because ultimately, the purpose that we have here on earth is to bring glory to the God, no matter what that looks like. Uh, I think about the people in the Bible who suffered greatly for the gospel, who went through some really hard times. And uh, there's none other really that can speak to this idea of suffering more than Job. I mean, Job was this guy who in his community was blameless, is what scripture says. Uh, People could find no fault in him. He was a stand-up guy. And Satan said to God, he said, I bet you if you let me get my hands on him, he'd turn his back on you. And God allows Satan to have his way with Job and basically takes away everything from him. His family, his money, his livelihood, his health. I mean, he takes away everything. And, And sometimes in church, when we see this happen, in people's lives, in our own lives, it's easy for us to question, you know, why God? And I think the reason that question is so easy for us is because we're under this impression that God has promised us painless lives. We have this mindset that God was created for us rather than us being created for God. See, ultimately, at the end of the day, no matter how hard our experience that we might be going through right now, no matter how difficult the trial, if it points people to the Father, if it brings him glory, then it's for good. I, uh, I was thinking about this message and this question, and I started thinking about the people that influence me the most, the people who I like listening to speak. And most of the time, it's these people who have overcome a lot. Uh, you can think about the guy who has no arms and legs, the quadriplegic who hit YouTube and blew up, who's now an inspirational speaker and a pastor inspires people constantly with his encouragement because of the things that he's overcome in his life. It's the same reason why you listen to the person who's survived cancer, or the person who was a POW, or the person who's felt the sting of death and hardships. You see, because those people, people who have experienced pain, who have experienced trials, when they speak to you, they're proof that God is faithful. They're wearing their scars as proof that God heals. You see, sometimes I believe bad things happen to good people so those people can help other people get through their hard times. Amen. I think that the last reason why bad things happen to good people is because God wants us to be reminded that this is not our home. Mm-hmm. This is not our home. Amen. If this life was perfect, if this life was easy, then you probably wouldn't think about heaven too much. And the idea of heaven wouldn't be that appealing because we'd have it so good here. When I think about Jesus' life and how he suffered, the most pivotal moment when he was hanging on the cross was the greatest moment of suffering and also the greatest moment of glory. 
And so if I have to suffer here on this earth and experience Christ in his suffering, I can hold to the promise that someday I have eternity in the heaven with Jesus in the fullness of his glory. In the fullness of his glory. You know, I think that I actually started praying for suffering when I took on this idea because people who live good lives, they go to heaven and that's awesome. Heaven is great. But imagine the person who has went through literal hell here on earth. Literal hell. How much more are they going to be filled that day when they get to be with the Father? How much greater is that day going to be? So as we wrap up tonight, um, I know we only talked about two questions. I think it's important for us to acknowledge the fact that when we have these questions, God wants us to ask them, and he always gives us answers. Whether that's through scripture or through us, his uh, Holy Spirit convicting us to make different choices and decisions in our life. I believe that the greatest question that we each have to answer is if we died today, where would we spend eternity? If we died right now, where would we spend eternity? And if you're in this room tonight and you can't answer that question, I challenge you to cling to the God who loves you, to surrender to God who's calling your name right now, who wants your heart, who wants you to have a relationship with him. If you can't answer that question tonight, pray about it. Ask God to show you what that looks like to have a relationship with him. Come up here. We have Todd up here and me. I'd love to talk to you and pray for you and encourage you. But don't walk up those doors not being able to answer that question. Because while it's great to have the answer to if homosexuality is a sin, and while it's great to understand why bad things might happen to good people, if you don't understand or know in your heart where you're going after you die, life get that answer tonight be assured that when you die you spend eternity with the father in his glory guys there is nothing more beautiful or wonderful than having a hope that someday we get to see our maker's face that someday we're delivered from this life of pain with no more tears and no more college debt and no more brokenness and no more failed relationships. I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty awesome. I want you to be able to hold on to that as you leave this place tonight. So would you respond? As the band plays through the songs, you can respond by coming forward, talking to me and Todd, praying by yourself. Or you can respond by giving. We have the offering buckets. Giving back to God what God has blessed you with. Whatever it is tonight, I just challenge you to act. Don't wait. The fact of the matter is, life is but a vapor here on this earth. You could walk out those doors and, I don't want to say this, but something awful could happen in an instant. Be assured tonight where you're going. It's great to have the answers to these small questions, but have the biggest answer, the the greatest answer, that God is in your heart, that he's your father, and that when you die, you're going home. Would you pray with me? Dear God, we want to thank you for tonight. We want to thank you for Brother Todd, for his wisdom to interpret scripture, Lord. God, Todd and I both know that the things that we spoke about have nothing to do with our knowledge or our wisdom, but more importantly, they have to do with your truth that you've given us. 
through your word. And God, tonight, I just pray that as we look at issues like homosexuality, we'll be able to respond with an attitude of grace. And God, I pray that as we look at these questions like why do bad things happen to good people, we'll understand your goodness. And while we don't have to understand your ways and we can't possibly fathom your plans, we'll trust that it's perfect and for our good. Lord, tonight as we are in this place, God, if there's any questions, if there's any person who is questioning their salvation, questioning where they might go if they died tonight, Lord, I just pray that you would give them their answer, that for the first time they might hear your voice, that for the first time they might feel your love and know they're not alone. God, I just pray that you convict us. I thank you for your love and for who you are. God, I thank you that when we have questions, you have answers. I thank you that when we call, you hear us and you come to our rescue. Jesus, in my prayer, amen. So would you stand and sing and respond in any way that God might be calling you tonight?